Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And with this piano sound, Don Henley changed adult contemporary rock and roll as we know it. If you are in your 40s, this song makes you feel the most in your 40s. Like, I'm 41, and I fucking feel 41 with that piano playing. The song is The End of the Innocence. It's by Don Henley from his 1989 album of the same name. It's also number 389 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, Fleece Army? How you living, you kadoogly-doogles? Thank you guys for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, you are now in the Fleece Army. And I don't know if you know this, but we have a Patreon and we have video for this show. You can watch all the full episodes every Wednesday on Patreon, coming out the day of the audio. And if you don't get our Patreon, you can watch the video on Thursdays on our YouTube. So go to the 500 Podcast with Josh Adam Myers on YouTube. Subscribe, subscribe to our YouTube guys, because any subscriber we get, adds to listens and dollars that we need to pay our staff join the patreon at patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast help us help you we want to keep bringing you guys this show as long as we can we got another seven and a half years left so contribute any way that you can if you love the show just kick us kick us a couple bucks guys all right this is a meaty record a lot of you love this record first time i listened to it Hmm. We shall see. Released on June 27th, 1989 on Geffen Records and co-produced by Don and Danny Korchmar, Mike Campbell, John Corey, Stan Lynch, and Bruce Hornsby. This is the third solo album from American singer, songwriter, and drummer, Don Henley. Born in Gilmer, Texas in 1947 and raised in Linden, Don originally played football in high school until his coach suggested he join the school band due to his small build. He was a tiny boy. He started off on trombone, I bet he did, before moving to percussion and even played with friends in a band that did Dixieland music. By 1964, they were a country folk rock group with Don as their drummer, and after several name and personnel changes, they released one Henley-written single. Then in 1969, they met fellow Texan Kenny Rogers and settled on the name Shiloh. 
By 70, Kenny helped them release another couple singles, got them signed to a small record label, and brought them out to LA where he could produce their debut. The Troubadour Club was a hotbed of music at the time, with future stars of the new country soft rock and singer-songwriter genres mixing and jamming together, including Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Carole King, and even comedian musician Steve Martin. It was there that Don met guitarist and singer-songwriter Glenn Fry, who was also on Shiloh's record label in a duo with J.D. Souther called Long Branch Penny Whistle. Dude, I fucking love that name. Long Branch Penny Whistle. In 1971, band disagreements broke Shiloh up, and Don and Glenn were recruited for that year's tour as Linda Ronstadt's backing group, which came to include bassist Randy Meisner and guitarist and multi-instrumentalist Bernie Leiden. That same year, Don and Glenn realized they had the makings of a solid songwriting and performing team, and after David Geffen bought them out of their previous record contracts, they formed the country rock band The Eagles, which came to include Randy and Bernie. They were signed at Geffen's Asylum Records and released their debut in 1972. Although Don's only lead vocal on that album was Witchy Woman, a song he co-wrote with Bernie Leiden, it was a hit and by the next album, his songwriting partnership with Glenn Fry yielded the Henley song, Desperado, and the Fry song, Tequila Sunrise, and they were off and running. The band became wildly popular and had their first number one with Best of My Love. They followed with another album full of hits and then put out a greatest hits collection, which is currently still the best-selling album in the U.S. Then they released the best-selling album, Hotel California, in 1976 and put out what was intended to be their final album, The Long Run in 79, before splitting up the next year in a haze of acrimony. Don then began his solo career with the 1981 top 10 pop and adult contemporary duet, Leather and Lace, written by and sung with his old girlfriend, Stevie Nicks. He started dating actress Marin Jensen, who would be his longtime companion and inspiration and eventual fiance. In 1982, both Glenn Fry and Don put out their first solo albums. Don's was a hit with three charting songs that established a solid working relationship with guitarist and producer Danny Korchmar. His second album, two years later in 1984, was a critical and popular success, sounding very adult and uncompromising despite having huge hits, including the number one mainstream rock tracks, The Boys of Summer, and All She Wants to Do Is Dance. The album was filled with programmed drums and synthesizers. And besides Korchmar and old friend and collaborator J.D. Souther featured co-writes with members of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Mike Campbell, Ben Montench, and Stan Lynch. He and his fiance Marin Jensen broke up in 1986, and between that and his typical fashion, he took his time to construct his third album. He began working on it in 1987, and it wouldn't be completed until two years later. Once again, writing with all of his buddies, he meticulously put together a collection of songs that were personal and imbued with idealism, cynicism, despair, rage, and hope, as well as some that were politically charged. He spoke to and for those of his baby boomer generation that were reaching middle age and didn't like what they saw around them, but he took care not to be too self-righteous. As he explained it, I think there's always a place for a little social commentary. After all, this is one of the basic principles of rock, folk, blues, and country music. But you can't hit people over the head with it. You can comment, but you can't preach. 
Near the end of the completion, he also co-wrote the title song with Bruce Hornsby, the piano-playing singer-songwriter who in 1986 had huge hits with The Way It Is and Mandolin Rain and won the Best New Artist Grammy along with his backing band, The Range. The musicians on this record included a whole bunch of people and he also had a whole bunch of people do guest vocals. The new record's sound was less synthesized but no less glossy. And despite most of the songs over five minute lengths, it was prime for the ears of the fans that had grown along with him, as well as their kids. The album spawned four hit singles and several album tracks even charted. It went on to be the most popular and best-selling album with over six million copies sold and the title track won Grammy for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. It would be 11 years before Don released another solo album in 2000, but during that time, he founded several ecological charities, was sued by Geffen Records, put out three new songs on a greatest hits collection, sang on some soundtracks and other artist records, married his girlfriend, and took part in a surprising and hugely successful Eagles reunion. And then in 1998, he was inducted as a member of the Eagles into the rock and roll Hall of Fame. He's also the fourth wealthiest drummer in the world after Ringo Starr, Phil Collins, and Dave Grohl. And my guest today, and I can't believe we found him, is a huge fan of not just the Eagles, but of Don Henley. My guest today is Alan Tudyk. You know Alan from the TV series Firefly, from the movies Dodgeball, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. You know him as the voice of K2SO in Rogue One. Also, Alan is now starring on Resident Alien, the new sci-fi series where he plays a crime-solving alien in disguise. It comes out January 27th. It looks hilarious, but you know Alan from right here he was an incredible guest that loves, loves the cheese. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a five-star rating and a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam, run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 389 out of 500 with End of the Innocence by Don Henley. I am not at all going to shit on this album because it isn't bad. But What do you uh, mean it isn't bad? It's so good. It's, no. How many are on this album this thing is a piece of gold a chunk of it a mountainside you didn't let me finish i was I'm gonna sorry, say yes. this is what is great about doing this podcast is that you listen to it and then the first listening you're like man i'm just not gonna this isn't gonna be the one that i that i'm like i fall in love with and then on like the eighth ninth listen all the stuff that i thought was cheesy suddenly becomes Oh man, like I love this. Like I'm humming it, I'm dancing to it. And obviously I can see by your reaction by me saying that you're coming in from a totally different angle. So tell me, tell me why you're a fan of this record and tell me your history with it. Well, I I want to I want to embrace the cheese of this album because it is there. Yes. But who doesn't love cheese? Love it. I mean, come on, it is it, it's American staple. 
And so is this album. So is Don Henley's voice and his music. I was a fan of the Eagles. Uh, I grew up in Texas. He's a Texas boy. So I, I knew the Eagles. I was young, though. I was going to high school. And his music was not the tape. These are not the tapes I bought because, it's, of course, back at the time when you had to buy your own music. You didn't. So your, your investment in music was a really big deal and it was about your identity and all of that. And I was not like, I'm Don Henley. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, am I going to spend $18 on a Don Henley cassette? Yes. Cassette. This is cassette time. I don't even know if CDs were out at this point. If they no, were, no, no, they didn't come out till the 2000s. Either. No, no. The late 90s. <laughs> no, mid 90s. By the way, we're, we're all finding out right now. Alan uh, is still on Rumspringa from being Amish. And yeah. you, you, were, <laughs> you were just completely just, I don't, it's CD. It's like, what is Laserdisc? <laughs> Yeah, so I the the mu- the music that I invested in was like I was into Violent Femmes, really big into Violent Femmes in '88 when this when this album came out. Um, but growing up in Texas, the radio, like you said, the radio was this is what was coming out of the radio, and there weren't a lot of radio stations. There was no satellite radio, and so you couldn't help but get Don Henley sound, and this, there were so many hits on this. It's almost like it was a subliminal, my subliminal youth, which is another great band name that never existed. Um, great band. Maybe, that's, more of an, that's more of an album title, My Subliminal Youth. I saw them at Lollapalooza in, in, in 94. It was incredible. <laughs> subliminal <laughs> Youth. That was really when they were peaking too. But if you like, look at the like the cover of the album, of this album, The Age of Innocence, his bangs, he's like, he's in the time of, He's kind of like trying to flock of seagulls it with that bang thing. He pulled one little grouping down to say, I can do this, but then puts out that sound that is Bruce Hornsby sound. Very nice, nice pluck, because we're going to be talking a lot about Hornsby on this. So, yeah, which is funny that you bring that up because Bruce Hornsby, he had been working on the record for about four years because he takes his time to 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 make a record. And he's coming off of the, the last record, Building a Perfect Beast in 85. Um, he's he's bummed out about the uh, like because it's it's so funny that this record came up after we just did a Jackson Brown album where there's basically the same uh, not theme, but just that that underlying feeling of of the hippie era dying and yuppies and excess and basically like how parents are dealing, you know, they're, they're changing. Like all their kids are becoming Republicans. It's all, everything's, everybody's an Alex P Keaton, but that's like a huge thing that of course someone, you know, I'm only 41 didn't really get to feel because I, you know, I wasn't a hippie. The closest thing I was, was a raver, um, which is kind of hippie, but so, yeah, so he's dealing with all of these thoughts uh, and he wants to make this record a big artistic statement and he's he make he's make, working on the record, working on the record. And then Bruce Hornsby is just coming off of that's just the way it is. And then Mandolin, Mandolin Rain, he wins Best New Artist. He's on everybody's radar. Him and him and Don start working together. And and this is what's kind of cool about this is that this was the last song. End of Innocence, End of the Innocence was the last song that they recorded. And so you can tell that he heard Bruce Hornsby and was like, this is the sound. This is the thing. And then he bring, brings him this song and they write it together. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to name the album after this. Was Bruce Hornsby that good? I've, I only know that's just the way it is. I guess so. He, I mean, the, the, this is his, 
because this is a lot of hits here. Does is it just this song that Bruce Hornsby worked on? I'm pretty sure. He worked on the whole album, just this song. It, there's there's six different producers, and there's a wow. shitload of guest stars that we're all going to talk about. Some of them that blew my mind. So, all right. So, so getting back to you know, you're you're in your teens. You're in. You're driving yourself to high school. You're mentioning these bands like Violent Femmes, which I'm assuming you know maybe the Pixies made their way in there. Yeah, yeah. So then, and and like I said, because we talked about the cheese. How the fuck does this record? Are you blasting that you're picking up a hot girl? Like, hold on, get in the car. And it's like, gonna turn it loose. Gonna get my own shoes. I mean, is this that your is, makeout music? Uh, no, no, no. It's uh, my makeout music is in a New York minute. Oh, there it is. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, sorry. Uh, Here, move the car seat. Ouch. Ouch. You got a leg cramp. In a New York minute. It's the stuff that you, this is not the stuff you make out to. It's the stuff you put on when you're driving the girl home. And, and it's kind of, just kind of make it feel all okay. It's your, the party's over, <laughs> but you, you want to feel good about what just happened. I know. I've had a lot of dates like that, dude. It's like, we're, we're good, right? I didn't make, I didn't completely fuck this up. All right. Yeah. It so, excuses any fumbles and it, you know, <laughs> you know, makes, yeah. So, so you dig into it in high school. So like, how is, how has it evolved? Like, I mean, do you love it now more that you've gotten older and you re-listen to it? I mean, tell me. I do because it, I mean, this, this album has so many hits on it. Yeah. Uh, But this sound, like it, it bleeds into that whole time with Glenn Fry and Smuggler's Blues and that whole feel uh, that was going on in the eighties at that time. And it, I don't know. It feels, it's very innocent. There's no end of the innocence for me at that age. Uh, I think I still had a paper route. It's Eddie Murphy as a, as a huge movie star. And, and, and the, just, there's a lot of potential there. So it feels really good. Now it does feel cheesy. I don't know why the saxophone, I love a good saxophone. The saxophones in here that looks like they took a sax, they sounds like they took a saxophone and then processed it through a kazoo. Like, what the shit? <laughs> it's so did, weird. Is this the music from Tecmo Bowl on Nintendo? Because that's the feeling. It's like he played that game and was like, that's the sound. That's the <laughs> sound we need. That, the music from Contra. Can you get us that? <laughs> it's well here's what's funny that you're saying this oh because yes my initial reaction was cheese didn't think i was gonna like it uh, i've listened to the record eight nine times uh i listened to it earlier today and i was all the cheesy songs i was like i was like dude i love that like that saxophone that i love it now uh and i and i think you're right you kind of do have to accept the cheese. You understand that this guy, Don Henley, you know, has made incredible music. He's around 41, 42 is when he's making this. There's the themes of everything that we talked about prior, the Hornsby, the, the yuppies, the excess. Um, and he spends all this time on it. I think it's just funny, especially with the bands that you mentioned earlier, who aren't overproduced. Like, dude, the Violent Femmes are like the most anti-produced band. Same with the Pixies. This is not a bad record. It's just overproduced, but the songs are good. And, and you might hate me for this, the songs are a little too long. Yeah, what's that one? There's, 
one where he just I'm so surprised he can repeat so the same thing over and over and over again. It's like half the record uh, you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> but the, man, the last worthless evening. That song that is a love song that will that will that got him laid. A, I mean, he was getting laid a lot anyway. Hundred percent. Yeah, he's Don Henley. He was. But, he was with. I think he was with Stevie Nicks right before this. Maybe in the seventies. I don't know if I have the. He did go through some scandals. I don't know if you know about this. No. So the Eagles break up in the eighties. This is for the police army out there that love these weird facts. There's a scandal. Uh, he has to call the police because a girl ODs at his house. They come to find out that she's an underage prostitute. And there's another underage girl there. Uh, don't know what she got. I, I assume that she probably overdosed on like cocaine and like, uh, what are they called? What are those popular pills everybody loves? Ludes. Ludes, yeah. God, missed ludes. Really wish I could have done those. And then he's busted to contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Uh, That's it. Yeah, and then he, and then this came out in '89. Building a perfect beast is in '85. <laughs> I'm I on mean, the turn it loose. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm on the turn it loose. <laughs> Uh, that's let's just you know what that's a perfect that's a perfect segue to dive into the record let's let's get into this thing because it really is fantastic all right it opens with the end of the innocence it's the first single and it sets a very dark tone because this is not a uplifting song so it's co-written with pianist and songwriter uh bruce hornsby who with, with, with his backing band, The Range, had recently won Grammy for Best New Artist and had huge hits with That's Just The Way It Is. And he had two big records. And it's funny uh, that, you know, he did work on this record because the piano in this sounds very Hornsby. Uh, Jeremiah, play the opening. To me, this sounds exactly like the opening to That's Just The Way It Is. Some call it the Hornsby sound, which is that syncopated piano style. He also has Wayne Shorter's soprano sax on it, which kind of echoes the Branford Marsalis sound uh, that Sting was doing at the time. And although it starts off to personally be about what we lose as we mature, there's no mistaking the political implications of what America was wising up to, especially uh, in the line, they're beating plowshares into swords for this tired old man that we elected king, which is a twist on the Bible phrase from Isaiah 2-4 that described the end of times and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I don't know what a pruning hook is, but the tired old man is obviously the second term uh, President Reagan, who is dealing with the fallout of the illegal trading weapons for hostages and lying about it in the Iran-Contra affair. I wouldn't have thought that he was a big Bible guy. That's great. That's that's just some great lyrics, man. Yeah, dude. I mean, definitely not a Reagan fan. Uh, but yeah, that definitely that's that uh, that stuck out to me too. The thing about the the old man, tired old man, who we elected king. Is that what it is? Something like that. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's funny because, like I mentioned earlier, man, this song does just take you back to the late 80s. And, you know, it was, I mean, for me, you know, nine, 10 years old when this came out, I mean, it's really, that was my most innocent. You don't have taxes. You don't, you're not in debt. You're just, you don't have to deal with women yet. You're just like, just living. And it's all about Ghostbusters and Transformers. And it really <laughs> does. Like this song is, there, 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 it deserves to be the title of the album. It does set up everything. I mean, the album doesn't sound exactly like this after it, but, but it's, it's such a great song and it, it just brings back so many memories. Um, thoughts on the song. I, I think there's also a creepy first album, especially or first, the first uh, group of lyrics there, knowing that he was with underage prostitutes about where he's talking about, Oh, oh! It's the part about how we have a. It's the it's the chorus about I know a place where we can go, still untouched by man, where you can sit and watch the clouds roll by and the tall grass waves in the wind. You can lay your head back on the ground and let your hair fall all around me, which is impossible uh, if you're if she's on the ground. But still, um, um, offer up your best defense. <laughs> but it's the end. It's the end of innocence. So what? She's her best defense at what? Don't do it. And he's like, I paid you. The money's on the dresser. <laughs> what the money's on the box? dresser. Listen, I paid for an hour. If I finish early, we're playing Jenga. Okay? That's how this goes. He's arrested after calling 911 to save a 16-year-old prostitute who, oh, yep, cocaine and quaaludes, hosted a gathering of Eagles crew members and associates as a farewell since the band was splitting up. He called a madam. Dude, I wonder if it was Heidi Fleiss. You know, this is like oh, right, right around that time, dude. Yeah. Who arranged for the girl who turned out to be 16. All right. Bad looked on claims. He did not know her age and did not have sex with her. When she shows signs of a seizure the next morning, Henley makes the call and medical professional arrived to find her naked. What did he get? No contest to contributing to a delinquency of a minor. A misdemeanor lands him $2,000 fine and two years probation. All right. Well. You know, all right, Don, does this change the way we feel about him? 
I mean, it was the 80s. That's like everybody's excuse. It's whatever the decade was. It was like, you know, Pete Rose got caught with like young girls and he was like, it was the 60s. And you're like, I mean. <laughs> I'm in Canada uh, right now. I, my, my wife is kidding. We live in Vancouver. And I think uh, the consent, the age, it's it's not 18 here. It's 16. It's 16? So, yeah. So for Canadians, that's no, hey, no biggie. That's nothing. That's not. Yeah, you should have flushed the drugs, Don. Get smart, buddy. <sighs> Dude, too many lewds. Do you have a Do you have a time? Was there an experience where you feel you ended your innocence? Oh yeah, man. God, I wonder if Don Henley, I oh, had anything to do with it. Like if he was just on or I'd love, I'd love it if he was like playing on some on some jukebox in the background somewhere. And and uh, my the, my end of innocence, my what I truly. <laughs> I think I must have been 16 because I, I was just started smoking cigarettes. I went out. I'm from Texas. I went out deer hunting uh, with my grandpa, my dad, my brother in outside San Antonio. And I was in a deer blind. My brother was in a deer blind down. Uh, we have a deer lease out there, uh, some old family land. And my dad and my sister went off to go kill rabbits somewhere. Just death all around. Um my grandpa, I think my grandpa left before uh, he left. Um, he gave me a knife. It was his gun too. And he said, I said, I don't know how to kill a deer, which is just disappointing for him to even hear. Uh, Cause we were city boys up near Dallas. And uh, he said, we well, shoot it in the neck and then come down out of the deer blind. Cause these deer blinds are just built on the land. And there's a feeder, not hundred yards from the thing that goes off every once in a while. These deers are used to coming to. And then every once in a while there's a hunter there. Uh, it's because they were poor and you hunted for meat. So they took every advantage that they could um, as unsportsmanlike as it might seem. And uh, I, I'm up in this big stand, which had hornets anyway, gives me a knife. He says, shoot it in the neck and then cut its throat to bleed it or else it'll spoil the meat. And I said, all right, sure. So he leaves. It's got this swivel chair. And there's a little thing, a little box window cut out of the plywood, and I'm looking at a uh, at a at the feeder. But the sun's coming up behind me, so I just spun around and watched the sun. I was watching the sun come up because we were out there five in the morning, or something. And then I heard like the <laughs> the classic twig snap, and turned around, looked at the window, and there was a a mother and two babies. Now you're not supposed to kill the females, but my grandfather told me before he left. Hey, if it's a female deer, kill it. <laughs> and my dad said, sure about that, Ralph? <laughs> he said, yeah, it's legal. They made it legal. So I turned around, turned in my chair, and it's going, eh, every time I turn, eh, eh, and uh, the deer keeps looking at me every time that I squeak. And I finally get around, and it's still there. I get the gun. I, I aim it. It's broadside. Uh, I pulled the trigger. And the safety's on. So I hyperventilate, full-on hyperventilate, have to put my head into my shirt, calm down, because I'm going to pass out. Then its butt is towards me when I look back. So I don't know how to shoot it in the neck. So I just hit the, the side of the deer blind, and it craned its head around, and I shot. And it was an amazing shot. Accidentally, it spliced its uh, spine, and um, it dropped it. And when I opened my eyes, obviously, I, I evidently had closed them while I shot like a champ. It was just right there. And I ran down the stairs or the ladder, got the knife, 
and it still was alive. It's kicking and there's a hole in its neck and blood's just squirting out every time its leg kicks or its heart beats or whatever. And it was the most beautiful animal I had ever seen. And I put the knife to its throat and it's kicking and bleeding. I was like, no, <laughs> I'm going to get my gun and kill it and put it out of its misery. And I, when I came back down, it was dead. And uh, I just sat with it until my brother showed up and called me an idiot for not bleeding it. And then he did it. And then they gutted it. I couldn't gut it. I was about to hurl because the stink. And then, and my grandpa shows up and he's like, you got to cut the head off of that and bury it out here. Cause we can't shoot females. <laughs> is your family, the Texas chainsaw massacre family? Jesus Christ. This is Texas gotta, living, man. This like, is you got to cut it. You got to cut the gizzards out. You got to yeah. cut the fur off, wear the fur, drink the blood of the deer. And then we have to burn it in a, in a, in a spiritual uh, ceremony that we do in front of this barbecue. My, my innocence was this. Let me get it back to fucking reality here. My grandpa, <laughs> we took the skinned carcass to a, some bar somewhere, which had a walk-in freezer with a ton of carcasses in it, and we hung it up in there. And then we went in there. So I'm 15, 16 years old, and my grandpa's like, I'm buying you and, and starts buying me beers. So I've killed something and now I'm drinking at the bar. Uh, and the bartender comes around. And he says, hey, uh, that T-bird out front that's got two flat tires, it's been out there for two weeks. Uh, I have a T-bird just like it, but my driver's side window, somebody busted it. So if you steal the window out of that T-bird, I'll give you 20 bucks. And I said, well... I don't have any tools. My grandpa said, well, here's some pliers. <laughs> and, <laughs> Your grandpa is a degenerate. Dude, Jesus. He was, he was, uh, he, it's what is called an outlaw, my friend. It's called a desperado. And so uh, went out front. Also, I should also say, turned out my grandpa owned that bar. Like it was, he was that kind of guy. We we're like, oh, you own this? But anyway, um, so I stole it. I ripped out the interior and pulled and got the guts out clipped the wires, pulled it out, sat it on the bar, got 20 bucks, got drunk, and uh, I killed something. Did you get laid that night? No, but I did smoke cigarettes and then threw up all over the place. Dude. I threw up everywhere. Outside the trailer, they lived in a mobile home, out in the back of their trailer. I just erped all over the ground, and uh, so there was a purging. Um. I was 16, so there may have been masturbation in there somewhere. So I, sure, I like to sure. probably, I mean, yeah. it's more, more than likely that did happen. <laughs> that was the end of my, that was, that was, that was the day I feel like I became a man. It's also the day you found out you're he's like, dude, grandpa's crazy, dude. He's living in a trailer and this bar is gorgeous. <laughs> Look at this bar. He's, he's investing all the money into it. A hundred percent that a hundred percent. Like I could see, like, I, I don't think I've ever killed anything like that and i could imagine being 16 years old and that's like such like a a gentle delicate age where it's like you're not a man but you're still kind of a child and you're right in that that sweet spot and then to have to do something like that uh have you gone hunting since i've never i haven't killed i killed i, I would go duck hunting i decided duck hunting was cool because you it was uh you had to get in camo and they're really smart. They're they're really hard to kill. Uh, <laughs> You're like, yeah, dude, I want a challenge. I want boring yeah. as deer. Yeah. So I would go. I would go. We'd go 
poaching on some people's land, me and my buddy Davey out in Southeast Texas, uh, around Thanksgiving time. It was good, good Texas fun, man. There's a lot of illegality. Oh uh, yeah, dude. From my, in my youth, it was like, if it wasn't a little bit illegal, it wasn't as fun. Oh dude, breaking the law in your teen, there is nothing better. Nothing more exciting if you, you know, cause chicks dig that too. You know what I mean? They don't want you to be in They want you to be, have like an outlaw vibes, just not like, you know, an actual like, you know, record. But even if you have like a light record, they might like that as well. Yeah. And teen, teenage girls would love a record. I feel like yeah, it isn't until they get into their late twenties that they go, Oh wait, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, dude, I Can I get the, the sensitive, <laughs> more sensible guy? But now that's what you are though, which is so great. So yeah, I, I, unless I, you're, I, unless you're still a fucking maniac that we just don't know. About. No, no. Luckily I left, I left that maniac behind, but, uh, I definitely didn't get girls. I was just, I was just a maniac. How bad do you want it? All right. Second song on the record. Uh, we talked about this sound earlier, this song, uh, and this sound, uh, might have the greatest instrument. We've ever come across since starting this podcast. Uh, JT, play it. How bad do you want it? Not bad enough. This is like this is like a step above like auga. You know what I mean? It is. I don't know. I think it's a saxophone. I have no idea. What I do know is I we were talking about it went from cheese to great. This song went from cheese. It still holds on to its cheese. But man, is this this song like I was singing it this morning. And so it seems to be about describing a, a throwing away of a relationship for that feeling. So I think it might be about cheating and then losing a good love. Um it was written by Henley and producer Danny Korchmar and Stan Lynch and then drummer in uh, Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers, uh, who was a frequent uh, Henley collaborator. All right. Tell me your thoughts on this song. Yeah, that is the sound that uh, saxophone sound that it sounds like it's processed through a kazoo to me, like somehow some kind of the electric kazoo. It, it, it's like a, to- a toy saxophone. Yeah. Or something. Uh, it's 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 eight bit, dude. This is this is like it's you. Can, I can make this like on like an old, old like original Mac. This is MIDI. It's a MIDI <laughs> noise. If you remember MIDI, yes. Um, were you listening to this song in like in like the late eighties and early nineties? Were, were you fucking with this? If this came on the radio, I would have turned it up for sure. <laughs> I like the cheese. I lo- I love this. It's got. It's got the repeat of how bad do you want it? And then it switches up. Well, that's not bad enough. I, I like, I like, I'll go for that. That's really good stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I liked Melissa Etheridge during this time too. I think that was 88. That again, that's Come not as. my window. Yeah. <laughs> I drive fast to that song. That whole album. I actually love that album. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's something beautiful about cheese. You know what I mean? Especially when you know it's cheesy. Like if we were just like, no, dude, this is that's the greatest sounding saxophone <laughs> since John Coltrane. And the vibe of this dude, he's a fucking badass. We understand Henley has a, a loft of hair while the rest of it's in a weird ponytail. He's probably got on a jacket with shoulder pads. Yes. He's dressed like Melanie Griffith from Working Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. That's exactly the look. <laughs> and I love it. And I love it. And I love that this song actually it's, it's, you know, he's, he's saying to this love, like how bad do you want it? So I wanted to ask you because obviously we, we, we can't go any further without bringing up. I mean, one of my favorite shows, Firefly, and yeah. it's something that went away and then was brought back because of love, because in the last full season, or the last season, the only season, it was canceled before the episode, before it had even finished. And then years later in reruns and then on DVD, you see it come back with your movie in 2005, Serenity. And so it, what I just want to know is, were you aware the whole time of the fan base that was brewing? And were you prepared for like that type of popularity? No. No, I, I think we did a we did a photo shoot before we were on the air and there were it was at some Frank Lloyd Wright house in L.A. And there were a few people. There was a gate to the driveway and there were some people like just like five people standing out there. And they were saying, what are those people? What are those people? And they're like, they'd really like it if you go sign something for them. It's like sign what? And they're here. They're like they're here because of Firefly. And it hadn't been on the air at all. So that, that was an inkling because it was their Joss Whedon fans. They were Buffy fans and they were Angel fans, Yeah, which was on the air at the same time, which I think people forget. Like when, when Firefly was canceled, all of Joss Whedon's fans still had a lot to watch. And so I, don't, I guess it didn't draw the numbers that it needed to, but it definitely did not get the ratings. Fox hated it. How bad did they want it? Not bad enough. They didn't, they <laughs> barely wanted it. They put it on Friday nights at eight. And then they'd take it off and play baseball. They'd show baseball was uh, playoffs or something. And then yeah. you would – like it's a tough time to premiere. They didn't give us any billboards. They really did not like the show. And then we were canceled. It, we, it wasn't a full season because a full season would have been 22 episodes. And we got a pickup of three. So we, we ended up doing 14 episodes, I guess, 14 hours. And they showed it out of order. It wasn't until the DVDs came out and they all sold out real fast that we heard anything like, hey, this was this caught the attention of Fox and this caught the attention of business people that this was maybe a mistake that they canceled it. And Joss Whedon was dead set on making it into a movie. And it was really his passion that got it made. Because then when it came out as a movie, it didn't it didn't succeed as a movie like in a Hollywood way needed to, it needed to succeed. You got to hit this number to make it right. And, and it didn't, it, it made its money, but you got to really make the money in movies for them to go. We need more of this. And it was at a time when, like when we got canceled, I remember I hearing Joss went to sci-fi to, Hey, do you want, Hey, look at this. We got the show. And they're like, we got a thing called Battlestar Galactica. We're starting. And then all of our Viz FX people went over there and did the same thing they were doing on Firefly and won a bunch of awards. Um, but the fandom came from the, the cons when you go to uh, Comic-Cons. But 
there's a lot of little ones. There's not as many little ones as there used to be. Back then, back in the early 2000s, there were ones that were run like, it's so carny. It was so janky. There were, I remember riding up in an elevator with somebody with a, uh, a cardboard box. This was in Atlanta, full of just loose cash. And they're just like dead-eyed going up in the elevator. There's so much money changing hands. There was so much uh, grift. It, it was uh, it was a crazy time. Uh, but I met a lot of fans, and it grew and grew and grew. And then after the movie, I don't know, because once people got to see it, the feeling was it was such a good show. It certainly should not have ended because you could just think of so many different storylines. Anybody can think of storylines for Firefly. It just worked. Um and it and it brought about I don't know it just it had humor the way it played with humor, uh, you see a lot more of that in sci-fi now. It wasn't going on as much back then, uh, so it it's become a staple for all sci-fi nerds who kind of want to want to come in and be nerds. If you say have you watched Sire, Firefly yet, and if you say no, you're like dude, what are you even? Come on, that's like telling me you haven't listened to Age of the Innocence by Don Henley. That is a staple, baby. Come on, man. Dude, that's what's so funny about Hollywood is just they they give up too quickly, especially with TV shows. They give up too quickly, you know. Dude, I'll tell you something. I went into a I went into a a general with NBC in 2013 and they were like, "So, what are you, what ideas do you have or whatever?" And I even said to them, I was like, "You should bring back Night Court." And yeah. they, they kind of like laughed me off like, hey, and I was like, "No, I'm serious. It's a great show." blah blah blah. And then we talked about my career, and guess what, dude? They're bringing back Night Court in 2020. Yeah. Am I a producer? No. But do I feel good about it? 100%, dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm living it. All right. Moving on. Uh, I will not go quietly. So this is an interesting song. One of my favorite songs on the album, for sure. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you know this, but uh, this rages with both middle-age angst and as a reaction to the breakup with his fiance. And... This is the shit that makes me just trip out about this record because I wouldn't have known it if it wasn't written right in front of me. Who better to join Mr. Don Henley than his raging label mate, Axel Rose? What? Yes, dude. So keep this in mind. Axel is in his 20s. He's soaked in controversy. GNR is at the height of their fame. You wouldn't know it, but Axel's singing back up. I'm going to play two different parts so you can hear it. Uh, so JT, play the chorus. You, I mean, dude, you gotta squint your ears to hear <laughs> Axel there. You won't even know it. Now here, play this one's way better. Play the play the other part, JT. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah! I will not go quietly. Oh, God, I would have never thought. I just would have thought that was some shitty effects pedal the producer put on. You know what I mean? Because that's if what they really, were doing. If you really squint your ears, you can hear his footfall as he's doing this. This classic <laughs> snake-esque 
He's like, all right, Don Henley, here we go. Wow. Can I do one of these? Wow. Wow. And he'd be like, no, that's a little too much, Axel. Dude, what a badass treat. I mean, the people in the dentist's office listening to this while they were waiting had no idea they were being force fed rock. I love it. So this is your favorite. Is this one of your favorite songs on the record? Yes. As a middle-aged man, this really now it's hitting my angst, my middle, my middle-aged angst which I haven't, I'm 50 this year, man. Dude, this is what I hate, man. How hard was my life that I'm 42, 41, and I look older than you? That's the shit. That pisses me off, man. No, it's the gray in your, it's just the gray. You gotta. I gotta. Just once you shave that off, it just brings out the years to start coming off. I'll look eight minutes younger if I shave it. (laughs) Although I also... I want to call out that 50 is not middle-aged. 50 is definitely over middle-aged. I'm not going to live to be 100. I don't want to live to be 100. I don't want 50 to be my middle. That's ridiculous. I don't want 50 more years? Jesus Christ. Have you gone through a midlife crisis yet? Uh, sure. I don't know. Hell, I don't know. I just got married four years ago. So I'm, I'm, I'm late blooming. I'm, I'm, I guess I bought a motorcycle. There it is. There it is. Yeah, it doesn't seem make my. I bought a Ducati. I bought a Ducati. Okay. My first bike right. was a Ducati Sport uh, GT. It was made for racing, track racing. It had been tuned up. It was. I had no business being on that thing. Now I have a Triumph Bobber, which is a lot. There it is. That's a nice 50-year-old motorcycle. It's a cruiser. What are you doing, Alan? Come on, man. You're not getting a rice rocket. You're not a rice rocket. An Italian stallion. I don't even know if that's what they call Ducatis, but. They call them, yeah, pasta rockets. Like an Arrivederci machine. Her name was Caramia. She was a beauty. She was, it's it's amazing I didn't kill myself. It was so fast. That scares me because I want a motorcycle like I do, but I'm so afraid that, you know, I'm just such a bad driver in a car. But I, I've gone through my midlife crisis, so it's I, – I get it. It's not 50. It's definitely – it's definitely, I'd say 38 is when I started like having my like mid, I was like, if I'm lucky, if I get another 38. What'd you get? A, did you get like a tattoo? I've already had these. Oh, you've um, got all kinds of tattoos. You know what I did? You know what I did? I, I started going to a spiritual guide and I started meditating. And uh, this year, this year I was supposed to go, I'm like super into, it. I was supposed to go to India and then I had to cancel that. I was going to go on like a, a spiritual journey for about a month in India. And then I was going to go to Peru and do ayahuasca, but you know, COVID. So, so instead I just took mushrooms in a field here in Maryland and, and, and called it a day. I was like, eh, it's pretty much the same <laughs> shit. No shaman, but the, the, you know, the cop did say It's a something. better time. The mushrooms, ayahuasca, it's evidently, uh, I've never done it, but it's, a lot of purging. That's what I'm saying. But that's what I'm saying is that I, my midlife crisis, I don't think is going to be buying anything. I think it's just preparing for, cause much like you, I don't want to live to a hundred, you know, I would, I'm at 41 and I, and I'm really in the best shape of my life, but that's like, you look in the mirror, the way that you were like, dude, I'm 50. And it's like, I look at you and I'm like, dude, you're a young dude. I just, you look young. Um, and then I look in the mirror with the gray and you're like, man, it's like, I feel like I'm 60. Like I look and I see a 60 year old, but I feel like I'm a 22 year old on the inside. 
And then I eat heavy carbs and I can't maintain an erection. So you there, know, yeah, that's that's when it that's when it all hits you out the window. The out the window. Twenty-two year old feeling goes. <laughs> it's like I'd have sex with you, but you want to meet at three a.m. and I'm going to be asleep by eleven. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> this will be your last worthless evening. I promise you. This will be a worthless <laughs> evening. Excellent. Um, so this this was a song that you talked about at the beginning. This is the second single. It's co-written by Don and Stan Lynch, again, with multi-instrumentalist John Corey, who also produced it. And Don is laying it on this girl thick. And this is going to blow your mind. Supposedly, the girl in this song that shoots him down is Michelle Pfeiffer. And this is all the things that he would have done to Michelle Pfeiffer. He goes, he's promising to keep things interesting and to save her. He's, he says, um, he's being a sensitive victim. He's pulling the old, nobody understands you here, but me card. And he's telling her life's short. So she better get with him quickly. Peter, play the chorus. Michelle Pfeiffer, she still is hot, but dude, you know, Witches of Eastwick, Michelle Pfeiffer, come on, man. I feel like she got better looking as she got older, like the the Scarface Michelle Pfeiffer, I don't know if she lost all that weight for the role, but it was a little bit like she needed- Bone thin. No, she's playing a coke wife. She's playing a a cocaine drug dealer wife, so of course she's thin. Um, So this is a great song. It is that perfect cheese. It is- perfect you know adult contemporary rock um but i love i love what he's saying in it i love that he's saying like because we've all done that it's like dude it's like nobody gets you more than me like i am sensitive and 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 i promise i'm gonna keep it it's gonna be fun we're gonna do this and you know and then she shoots him down so i wanted to ask you what's the worst you've ever been turned down oh god yeah dude it's the worst (laughs) i've ever been turned down been turned down so i'm uh (laughs) <laughs> Worst I've ever been turned down. I, I, the only one I could think of was like when I was like fourteen. Or Hit me, dude. Fourteen's a good year. It's an awkward time where you know. Went to uh, Sea World with my brother and his friend, my older brother and his friend, who were sixteen, and uh, we met three girls at Sea World. That they were away from their parents. We were away from our. Uh, we were on our own because they were sixteen, and I got paired with this one girl, and. They got their girls. We walked around. They went and sat down on a bench with their prospective females and started making out. The girl looked at me and went, I'm going to go find my mom. (laughs) I hate her. I don't like that girl. I had a weird haircut. I had, you know what my hair, my haircut was all my head was shaved except for my bangs. What? So I don't blame her. Yeah, all my I was skate I was skating, and that was that was the look I was going with at that point in time. I was like, are you? <laughs> I was like, that's you know that's the same haircut as uh, Edward Norton's girlfriend in American History X. <laughs> Feruzia Balk. Like, Feru- yeah, Feruzia Balk, whatever her name is. You had Feruzia Balk hair. God, I wish we had that picture right now. 
<laughs> that's the most unfuckable haircut, dude. I hate to tell you that, but I it has been my experience. It, that was that's what I I learned that that day with the with the faint smell of fish in the air. Oh, what, <laughs> on a <laughs> nice, cool Southern California evening. I'm gonna go find my mom. Oh well, you know what? Look look how you turned out, bro. Yeah, I, I'm doing all right. I'm, you're doing I'm great. Doing okay. you, you're handsome. You're a good looking guy. You're 50 and you look 38. Exactly, something like that. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. What I love about this song is it starts all noir and all Humphrey Bogart, and then goes full power ballad, uh, JT play a little bit. Here's, here's what's ironic about this song. Uh, it's about a New York minute about how life uh, is quick and there's drastic life changes. And yet this is the longest song on uh, the record. I'm pretty sure it's at six minutes and 22 seconds, which uh, this was one of the longest hits of the year. And I'd actually found maybe later. I think I found like all the other songs that were super long. Oh, freedom 90. That was one that's in it like seven minutes. So cool things about this song. It's composed by keyboardist Jay Winding and guitarist Danny Korchmeyer. And they were asked to write this song in a, in a way to capture the atmosphere and essence of New York in the late autumn or early winter. Nailed it. Late autumn. That's a good dude. That's the best time to be in New York. It's either, it's either. So I'd say from, from October till like the end of November Thanksgiving. And then you can't go back until like 
like May. I had no idea this song was on the record or even like I didn't even when I heard it years ago, I didn't even know that this was the title of it or that Don Henley did it. And then when this came on, I was like, oh, I know this one. Like I got excited. I was like, oh, I know this one. This one's good. Here's something really fucking cool about it. The acapella uh, gospel vocal group singing backup take six. Do you remember them? Uh, I remember the name. They're like the black Manhattan transfer. That's the shit my dad listened to. So, yeah. So they sang back up and then uh, the string arranger was David Page and the drummer from Toto, Jeff Percaro, uh, played on this as well. This is a great song. This is a great song. It, it, it sounds a little to me. It reminds me of Christopher, that Christopher Cross song. Is that Christopher Cross about between the moon and New York City? If you get up between the moon and New York City, and then dude, I, I fucking love Christopher Cross, bro. Man, he's 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 the king. He goes beyond cheese. He goes past it into this beautiful place. It's I mean that uh, it is. It's huge cheese. But so what? So this reminds you of that? There's something. Yeah, that's. I guess it's the New York in it. Uh, but it it also it's kind of from is that from the same time I feel like maybe the eighties maybe yeah. a little bit earlier no I think that because I think Tootsie came out the early eighties mm. I'm pretty sure like way earlier eighties but I I feel like this goes with a, a lot of the record this kind of does venture into some of the other hits uh, and other songs on the record and as well as the title um, so I wanted to ask you what was the one pivotal event that completely changed your life? I, it's either me going to New York City Ooh. from Texas to go to audition for Juilliard. That certainly changed my life because I got in and then that put me there. Uh, or once I finished Juilliard, I did this. It's kind of this. It, it, I, I was at Juilliard. They had a playwright program and I would do any reading with any playwright, like whatever you guys need. If you need an actor to read anything, I'll do it. And so uh, this director or this writer, David Auburn, who ended up winning the Pulitzer years later for proof, uh, had me read this thing. He was auditioning for this playwright summer festival in New York. There's a lot of them in New York in the summertime, um, new plays that are happening. It's like this workshop thing that happens where a lot of plays come from and this testing ground. And uh, they didn't take David's play, but they took me. I got a call and said, hey, do you want to be in this thing and do a reading with David Strathairn? I was like, yeah, great. So I did that. And they, they said, you know, there's another play here we want you to do uh, with Alan Zweibel called Bunny Bunny. And I did a workshop for two weeks after that. And then they said, could you stay and do another play? And so I stayed there this whole summer, met all these directors, met all these writers, and it became the foundation for me moving into the business because I left Juilliard after I, I went one more year in Juilliard, my third year, skipped my fourth year because I had made enough contacts that summer and had started workshopping Bunny Bunny, which became an off-Broadway show that I got awards for and stuff. And it became my... That did it. Yeah, that did everything after that. Oh, that's incredible. Bunny Bunny, Bunny Bunny did it for me. So you never, you don't have a diploma from Juilliard? No. But I have gone back to teach, which is strange that they would let Insane. me do that. Insane that, yeah. that a dropout that they they would be like because because basically at the end of it you could be like so what you got to do this first year make as many contacts as possible and then get the fuck out of here so you don't have to come back. That's what you got to do. And they're like, yeah, you uh, save yourself. 
35, forty thousand dollars or whatever it is a year now. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably more than that. All right. Shangri-La. Shangri-La is the fictional hidden valley in the Tibetan mountains from the 1933 James Hilton novel Lost Horizon, but it's come to mean any tranquil and harmonious paradise. So this song is kind of in the vein of Hotel California. It's almost Hotel California part two because it's got the is it heaven or hell theme. Uh, And it's, it's just a lot of similarities. Peter, play a little taste. Yeah, this is definitely like the most sexual song on this record. Um, This is like the kind of music that like a housewife, like, you know, does like a seductive dance to her husband on their anniversary. Uh, I'm guessing he's talking to a lady who came to L.A. and found out how shallow people are and now has to adjust uh, her priorities to survive. Uh, thoughts on this song, Alan? Yeah. I mean, this is when I do, I just, I do all of my housewife dancing to this. I mean, <laughs> I, I should say house, you know, husband, house we're all in our houses, you know, uh, these days more than we used to be. And this is, this is what I'm dialing up for that kind of thing. Not my favorite song in the album, but yeah, this, how is this? I did not, it, it, it's the, it's the, it's the follow-up to Hotel California because of its themes. Because of the theme, not because of the right. sound at all. Right, right, right. At all. Hotel California is one of those songs. That's, and trust me, Hotel California is cheese. The Eagles are cheese, but they're good cheese. They're really, really, really good cheese. And I love Hotel California. Actually, Bill Burr still owes me, because I know he's not listening, but I'm going to tell him I said this. He still owes me a performance of him playing drums as Don Henley on my show, The Goddamn Comedy Jam. I begged him to do it, um, and he will. But I love that song. But that but that song, Hotel California, is about, you know, is this real life or is this person dead? Are they trapped in hell? Is it purgatory? Um, and this is kind of the same vibe because L.A. and you might agree because I'm going to ask you about it. L.A. does have that is the, it's it's the most ridiculous place. It's so beautiful. The people there are. Are, are you know there there's no real substance to most people you know there's not saying there's not artists but la is kind of like a make-believe fantasy land for some and then it's also a hell for so many others uh it, so you moved to la later right because you went to new york first then you go to la so what was your first thoughts about when you first came here and and what was your like wildest early experience that kind of showed you what la had to offer who I, I resented it early on. I really res. I, I, I just, I con I condescended to it more. Sure. Uh, coming from New York, I definitely had that LA actors don't know what they're doing as far as the theater is screwed up. They have, you're allowed to, uh, they have double casts on certain plays so that if you get a commercial or a TV spot, you can, leave the play which is just sacrilege yeah when it comes to i mean because the theater is so serious in new york and there's really great theater in la i've now now that i've done it i've decided 
that. <laughs> 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 so now that I've seen it, uh, now that I've gone to see it, there's some really good theater. But when I first got there, I would look at the sky and it was blue all the time and sunny and I hated that. Yeah, me too. Uh, and I felt like I could, if I faint, looked at it closely, I could see faintly made out. Number one, Brad Pitt. Number two, George Clooney. Number three, like these, it's just the ranking. And I was nowhere on any of that list. There was just didn't exist. I couldn't stand it. So I would always go back to New York. And then on 9-11, I had a girlfriend in LA. And uh, she said people in her neighborhood were stealing flags uh, from one another because you couldn't buy a flag anymore, but everybody wanted to show that they were had a flag after 9-11. And I was in New York for 9-11 and I called a moving company and said, you can get the key from my next door neighbor, go to this address, everything you find in that apartment, put it in your truck and bring it to New York City. Screw LA, I'm never going back. And uh, I got a apartment's worth of stuff dropped off in New York. Uh, about a month later, I feel like I had just hung everything like perfect, it fits. And then I got a call. You got the job in Firefly. And I moved to L.A. <laughs> and I never moved back to New York. That is <laughs> it's like once you get, they keep pulling me back in. That's right. I stabbed it with my steely knife, but it, I, it just wouldn't bleed or whatever that line. You could kill the beast, bro. You couldn't. L.A. is the beast, you know, and I, I get it. I think about moving out all the time and I go to New York and I'm like, God, I love it here and the energy. And then. I go there in like February for a gig and I'm like, yeah, dude, I love Los Angeles. Like it's, it really, it's just all you got to do. And I think you, you probably agree with me is it's just, if you just stay, how do I put this? If you just not say focused, but you just have to believe that it's all going to work out. And, but within reality, because like, you know what I mean? It's like, you have to kind of understand where you're at and be like, okay, this is where I'm at. I'm working on this and it's going to happen because I know so many people that just have, they, they lost their mind and now they believe in like QAnon and they're, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Oh, Dude, no. I have so many, I have so many act, like comic and acting friends that have just, they've gotten no so much that it's like something snapped in them and they can't be normal anymore now they're like not sunset boulevard crazy but in you know what i'm saying it's like wow it's i always in la i especially the first few years all of my friends there nobody had a job but we were all like living these leisurely lives yeah and i was like what are we doing how is this even how are we sustaining ourselves what's happening this doesn't seem real at all and i feel there is a place where people get if they stick around because most of my friends that didn't get along with LA just went back, went back to New York, um, which is not a bad place to, to go back to, uh, especially Brooklyn. Um, Cause Manhattan now is Manhattan sucks. I don't know. That's my opinion. It sucks. I went down there. We were, we were going to move back there. We had decided we're out of LA. We were going to move back. And then everything in Manhattan what the Manhattan we knew back in the early 2000s and the 90s and the early 2000s doesn't exist anymore. It's new. It like all of the West Village is just NYU. Yeah, it's I. You know what's funny right now? There's there's a real sadness to it because they just reshut down. Like I was there in September, and they were allowed. To, you were I think you were allowed to eat like at 25 percent indoors, but the energy's gone. 
like as soon as I got off at JFK, I was like, wow, I was like, this is this place is empty. And then I got into the city and normally and I'm staying in in the um, in the East Village. But it's like I would get into the East Village and usually you get dropped off in the cab and you just feel it. And now it's like, oh, that's gone. Like so many people in my friend's building and he, he lives right on East fifth street, beautiful apartment complex. And it's like, I think he said half of the people that lived in that building have moved out. Holy shit. New York will bounce back, but man, is it, it's just been beaten right now. So much of that is the retail space. To, like, uh, or at least what I noticed it was missing when I was there. God, where well, I was there for uh, last year sometime before COVID um, we were near NYU. We were staying in the West village. And uh, a lot of the shops were empty. Like all the bottom floors of these buildings were empty. The retail spaces were empty because they were asking too high rent because they could write it off if nobody was in there. And so all of the things that made the neighborhood, the cobbler and the, all the little mom pop shops, uh, even the mom and pop dildo stores in the West Village, right there, <laughs> Christopher and Bleecker, the ones that made their own in the back. It's the only ones um, I shop at. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Now it's all the stuff you're getting from China. You know, you're going to get the uh, all of those. So it, it it was missing that personal touch, if you will, and and that that livelihood, that street, the thing that's going on in the street. Uh, little Tin God. So this is written again with John Corey and lo- and longtime Eagles and Henley collaborator JD Souther. And here's Don tearing down religious zealots. Uh, and televangelists. So during the 80s, uh, the late night and early morning phenomenon of huckster church leaders begging for tax-free money went mainstream and became a part of the political landscape to this day. They were opening amusement parks and resorts and selling endless merch and building huge ministries while achieving and maintaining opulent lifestyles. Evangelical TV kingpin Jerry Falwell bragged about helping to get Reagan elected president while Pat Robertson started his own religious cable network and ran his own failed presidential campaign. While in 87, televangelist Jim Baker had his multi-million dollar empire crumble in disgrace after being arrested, prosecuted, and imprisoned for fraud after it was discovered he made illegal hush payments to his church secretary, to suppress her rape allegations. Oh no. And then a year late. Yeah, dude. And then a year later, televangelist Jimmy Swagger got in trouble for engaging with prostitutes. I remember all of that. So this song is basically about that. And despite that, they both, uh, Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker all went on to have very successful and lucrative televangelistic television programs. And this is the song that Don Henley wrote about it. Play it, Peter. And what's so funny, Alan, is with all of that subject matter and everything I just said, the the style of music Don Henley chose to write about, <laughs> reggae. Reggae. <laughs> Thoughts on this song? What do you? How do you feel? Well, I wish he had gone with dreadlocks, just in that little bank. <laughs> that little doodly do, yeah, just dude. One single thin dreadlock, strangled little uh, dread. I like it. I love that. I love the message. I like the line about the six flags over Jesus. 
That's great. It's sad that all of these same people that he was singing about back then are now back, or at least uh, Jim Baker is back. Oh, yeah. He looks completely different. Totally different. It's weird. Yeah. And, but he was selling C. He's been he's been huge Trump supporter and like you need to buy seeds for the apocalypse that's coming. And I think they, they're like the type that sell uh, the bulletproof backpacks and stuff to kids and like the, any kind of tragedy, they make money off of it. They figure out ways to to get your prayer dollars and <laughs> buy this bucket of slop. That'll be good for the apocalypse. You're like, all right. If Jesus wants me to eat it. Yeah, I, li- I, li- I like it. I, I like the, I like the song. It's so funny that you, you don't realize you're hearing this takedown of the evangelicals uh, because it's true. Dude, I was just in Texas and I remember I was, you know, driving down. I was going from Austin to San Antonio and I was like, you see the huge churches on the side of the highway, these massive, massive mega churches. And you're like, it's it's just it's almost like like, listen, like, you know. B- believe in God and, and worship God, but it's like there's there's so much just shistiness of like organized religion when you get that big. It's just like, of course, like they're they're taking money because it's like you're you you keep they're begging you to give money and you know it's not going to helping people. It's going to them. Not saying everybody, but you know. Yeah, it's that whole Calvinist church thing of God loves those who are well off or something. So you need to follow me because I make a lot of money and I deserve money. It's God hears you, hears your prayers better if your church is the size of a mall. It's just everybody knows that. And you, you can run your credit card at the, do they have that yet? I'm sure they do. The little, the basket comes around, you just cube. tap your card as it goes by. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned it a second ago, where you're talking about Con Man, which Con Man was like one of the earliest internet series, and you set crowdfunding records in raising money to make it. Uh, so what was it like to basically be free from the corporate power structure and in charge of your own destiny on a show like that? It was great, man. It was great. And I... I I think there's some benefits to having people that can rein you in. There's some of it that I can watch now and go, you know, anytime you're doing edgy comedy, it's the first stuff that you're like, that really, that that doesn't work now. Um, uh, And there was a lot of that, but I remember getting a list from, so the, the first season I wrote, I wrote all, all the episodes directed them all. And so whatever I said went, we just put on Vimeo. Uh, the second season, we had uh, corporate money from Lionsgate for a streaming service that doesn't exist anymore. But it was in our contract that I got to do whatever I wanted. And somehow, and I remember getting a list of maybe a dozen notes off of the final edits on the entire second season. And I went, no. Uh, you know what? Number two. I'll do number two. And that was it. And I guess that was, it felt good at the time. I, I think there's, there's, I've also learned there's a, there's a benefit to having like the system, you know, whatever. There's it's a machine that's built that everything, one machine connects to another machine. It's, they're all compatible with one another. And if you're your independent self running around, they don't even know how to deal with you. You can take your, your idea to somebody and go, hey, do you want to put this on your network? And they go, what is that? 
you know, you already made it. Oh, well, if you hadn't made it yet, sure. But you already made it. So now you own it. And I don't want to put anything on my thing that I don't own. So you and like the publicity department, if you need those things, it's just uh, you got to kind of play the game to be in the game. And we made our own thing and it was bold as hell. And it's there's still some really funny stuff in there that'll make that, that makes me laugh. We got great people involved and I'm proud of it. I'll make something else again, but I'll do it next time with folk. It just made me closer to the fans that gave us three point six million dollars. Good God. It's amazing how close you become to someone <laughs> and they hand you three point six million dollars without like like, hey, guys, promise, I promise I'm going to do this thing. Could you hand me some money? And they went, sure, here's $3.6 million. Yeah. But we made, we made the series. We made comic books. We made a game on your phone. You, had a, you went to a con, and you, Joss Whedon was the janitor, and um, uh, Kevin Smith was the security guard in the thing. It was, it was, it was fun. That's incredible, dude. No, that's incredible. And that, if anything, to everybody listening, it's like you got to – Cause I'm in the process of doing the same thing. I've sold things to comedy central and to Spotify and you know, they change, they change everything. They, they take a lot of times they take the thing that's special about the show and then they remove it or, you know, it's just, I've, I've had that happen with the three things that I've sold. Now, that being said, you, you play the game because they give you yeah. a large amount of money, but there is nothing better than, than just being like, no, I'm, I'm, this is my vision. This is what I want to do. And I'm not going to take any notes. I'm just going to make it. Now it's good to have somebody to bounce notes off of, but like in the end, if you know, win, lose or draw, it's on you. And that feels good to be like, no, I'm doing it the way that I want to do it. So congrats to you, man. That's, that's really fucking cool. And, and, and $3.6 million is nothing to bat an eye at. Yeah. It was, it was very <laughs> cool. One lump uh, sum, one big check. It, yeah, they pay because it was a crowdfund, so they they put in the money then. But then you have, I mean, the thing about crowdfunding you don't know if if you haven't done it, the cost of shipping everything. Because what you're saying is, if you give us twenty dollars, we're going to give you a signed poster. So um, I signed twelve thousand posters, and uh, which takes a while. Um, but it's like the box is like, oh, what did I agree to? But then you have to ship them and then there's spoilage and then there's all it, so it becomes there's a like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars just out the window just to try to get things shipped. And there's a lot of a lot of stuff that costs money. I didn't I, I don't think I'm, I made very little money because I was one of those guys who's making a thing and I'm like, I need it to be this. I'm like, we can't afford that. We need that one. I'm like, take it out of my whatever I made. Put take it out of that. I need this making my dream. So I didn't really make money uh, my, it really annoyed the, my representation <laughs> dude fucked up dude. really annoyed them dude I, I love that you just said that i love that well hey friends my name is zach lupiton you may know me from the band dust bowl revival but i also host a music discovery podcast called the show on the road for the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? 
I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. All right, uh, give me what you got. So uh, this, again, has the writing team of Corey Henley Lynch and production by John Corey. The movie Wall Street came out in 87. So the whole corporate rating, greed is good, ethos and lavish lifestyles were in focus. Uh, To me, this sounds like the opening to L.A. Law. And it's got Don skewering the American dream of greedy excess through any shady deals necessary. And the part that I want to play. Uh, he takes this thinly veiled shot at someone uh, that we might recognize. So, Peter, play 221. All these trumped up towers they're just golden showers where are people supposed to live is this about the trump p tape and if so how does don henley know that which my only guess don henley's in the deep state oh my god what they're talking about on parlor dude this is what they're talking about (laughs) don henley knew I mean, it's because trumped up towers, golden showers. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? He nailed it. Nailed it. Not Didn't nail Michelle Pfeiffer, but he nailed this. <laughs> For he got sure. got this dude. right. Um, it's a good song. It's, it's a little cheese ball. Oh, something really cool is uh, Melissa Etheridge huh? and Edie Brickell sing back up on this. What? Yeah, dude. Wow. That's fantastic. Fantastic. That's fantastic. He gets the best collaborators. I, I, I like the whole gimme, 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 the gimme. Uh, I want it. I want it. Gimme it. I, I, I'm a big fan of the Beatles song, I Me Mine. I Me Mine. It, it's the same kind of feel uh, that, that whole I never even would have thought of that. 100%. 100%. Which is so funny because, you you know, when we just did Let It Be too. And until I did the research, I just, I had no idea it was about, it was just such an egotistical song. So nice pluck. All right. Uh, track nine, If Dirt Were Dollars, uh, Henley, Korchmar, uh, and Souther wrote this mid-tempo rocker, uh, which is the last of three songs about excess fame and broken American dreams. Uh, JT, play a little bit. Looking like a beauty queen, loyal as a wife. She said, I am a good girl. I've been one all my life. But her virtue was as swollen as a prize. She should have had the Oscar. She must have been miscast. Her 15 minutes went by so fast. I said, now, baby, have you got no shame? She just looked at me uncomprehendingly. So this this actually is more of a housewife dancing seductive to her husband on the anniversary. I, that's this is like this album is just chock full of that, uh, and it tells several sad stories of formerly successful people 
who have lost it all again and again. Uh, and it rages at the old, evil, and fake, patriotic, and pious men in power in this country that were responsible for making it and letting it happen. So. Wow, man. This is that whole midlife crisis thing with the Reagan and the conservative bullshit. Because you missed it. Being 50, like, you missed that. You're not, you're not, like, you know... What, what year are you born? You're born in... 71. 71. Yeah, so I mean, the hippies were pretty much... I'm not going to say they're done by then. I think they were still kind of... But you weren't old enough at all to like even experience... By the time you were in your teens, I mean, you're in the 80s. So, so yeah, so it's like... I mean, I couldn't even imagine what that would be like to suddenly be like this flower child and then to suddenly be like, nope, this it's all about money now. That's What a switch to like flip on and then be like, no, it's now I want a Ferrari and I watch Miami vice. Like that's, uh, it's just insane. Yeah. Which Abby, Abby Hoffman killed himself. Didn't he? Yes. And the other guy, the other guy uh, became a yuppie. Terrible. Terrible. All right. Let's get to the final song. The heart of the matter. Yes. All right. So Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the heartbreakers had written the music to the last album's huge hit. Boys of Summer. Campbell did it again with this one and gave it to Don, which is funny because it does sound like a petty song. Even the opening is pretty petty. Uh, Peter, play it. So why do you like this so much? Because you, I definitely saw, like, you, you just there was something in you. You got all, you got all Wang Zuki. I feel, I feel like this is the sound of '88. This, if you didn't live in 1988, this is what it, this is how it felt. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody, if there was a time capsule of 1988, this would be in there. It, this is, this is just how it felt. This is just the baseline of '88. How '88 felt, and you had different things happening. You, you had. You know, you had added up moments in your life with Violent Femmes and you had the Pixies and you had um, uh, Motley Crue and all those things, all those other colors in life. But just when there was silence, this is the the droning feel of the 80s, yeah. just the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, this is what's so funny is that when I this is one of those songs that when it came on, when I was listening to it. Uh, listening to the album, I was like, oh my God, I know this one. I know this one really well. Like I knew forgiveness, forgiveness. Yeah. All right. So this is the cool shit about it. So the lyrics were again, co-written with JD Souther as they were both going through breakups with ladies who found other men. It was JD's idea to make it about forgiveness. And Don eventually agreed as Campbell explained He changed the key to fit his voice, then went in and basically recreated the demo. He told me that lyric was something he had been trying to write for a long time, and it finally came out the way he liked it, something he really wanted to sing. Now, we talked about cheese. This song is is cheese supreme. Uh, We got to play the chorus because we got it. Peter, play the chorus. I've been trying to get down to the heart. But my will gets weak And my thoughts seem to scatter But I think it's a 
so in my opinion, this might be the most non-offensive song ever. <laughs> There's nothing, no, no group, no group of people, no race, color, creed, men, women. Nobody can find this song offensive at all. It is just, it is a, it is, it is written on scripture. It is, the music is just, it's so soothing. It's got different mm-hmm. movements in it. Yeah, this I think this might be the best song on the record. Yeah, this is this is what you're going to want to put on as you drive the girl home from your awkward loss of innocence moment. <laughs> your end you've just had your end of the innocence, you throw this on to drive her home so she doesn't feel bad about the toothy blowjob. Look. The toothy, I said it. You said, finally. It, it happens. It yeah. happens. It is something that happens to a, I'm sure all people either Don Henley. Yeah. Happened to Don Henley. It was actually a song on this album, but it got cut and didn't make it. Toothy blow job. Toothy blow job. That was the original lyrics to Witchy Woman. Do you want to do some facts and then we'll get you out of here? Yeah. Ooh. It's the facts and the matter. The facts and the facts, the facts and the facts and the... All right. Henley's writing process is to drive around in his car, listening to his song instrumentals until lyrical inspiration strikes him. This is one reason why there is so much time between albums. So I'm wondering, how much money does Don Henley spend on tolls a year? (laughs) Because I would have said gas, but gas in 1989 was 99 cents a gallon. How do you, uh, do you do stuff like that? Do you have any weird, like, you know, get your creative juices flowing? What's the strangest shit you do to find inspiration? Uh, I'll go watch people. I don't know. When I'm working on something, if I'm working on something and I'm trying, and I'm really, whether I'm writing something or I'm acting something, or I write really bad little songs for myself and my friends, uh, if I'm, but I think it's more of, more of a- acting or writing i'm processing it wherever i am and i'll find myself doing it out loud uh in public um whether it's a a, a gesture or a moment or a idea about a line i can be in the line at a grocery store and just say oh oh no like the idea of how to say, oh, no, like I'd heard somebody say, oh, no, that way. And oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then realize I'm talking out loud. Yeah. And there's a moment of, oh, OK, hello, everybody. I just sort of try to pull it back in. I guess that's that's a weird process thing that it just comes out wherever I am. What It's not it's not just odd. Oh, no sounds. Sometimes they're full lines. A lot of times it's just bursts of laughter. If I'm writing something and I think of something funny that I la- I make myself laugh very hard in, in the middle of groups of people, uh, that that that's an odd process thing. I you guess. said something though. You watch people. Um, so so, you'll, so is that more like you'll get the character and then you're like, well, I feel like I I get it, but I just don't. I, I, there's more to it. There's more mannerisms, and so you go out and just watch people and then just go that guy. I like I can see him being that character and look what he's doing. It's more like just in everyday life. With it'd be it's lucky to have the character you're thinking of and working on and seeing somebody that has the thing you need. Yeah. Uh, but just in everyday life, if you see somebody who 
puts their words together. Mouths are really interesting. When it puts their words together like that, or they bite their lip as they talk, that then I just, I can zone in on them and I'm fascinated and watch, watch them do it. And, uh, my wife's there. Look, look, watch, watch, watch. Look, 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 look at our waiter. When the waiter, we don't have waiters anymore. Though. Comes back, uh, that type of thing. Um, little, um, it can be scars. It can be just anything. And then when I'm creating a character, a lot of times those ideas come back. Oh, what about that thing that guy did? Um, or something will happen. I'll go, where did this come from? Oh, wait. Oh, right. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that on uh, the subway. Totally. Totally. I love that. All right. This is dope. After his long dispute with Geffen Records to get out of his contract, Henley co-founded the Recording Artist Coalition. Its goal is to promote musicians' rights so that they aren't trapped in contracts that aren't beneficial to them. I love that. I love this fact because... You know how many? All I've heard from from different people, the guests we've had on is just, and even with comics or in you know people that have you know sold things to different television networks, is just they're they're and ultimately what just happened with Dave Chappelle and the HBO Max thing and Chappelle Show, which is we sign these contracts when we need money and we're young, and then these people own it and we the artists get screwed out of money you know, in perpetuity because they always put that weird language in the contract where it's like, yeah, you get paid now. And then maybe you get a little bit of residuals, but that's fucking it. And so I love that. I never would have thought Den Henley would have been like, you know, artist rights, which is great. Makes sense. He's fighting the man. He's he's got a lot of fighting the man songs for sure. Dude. Pointing, out, pointing out the injustices. What's, what's the worst business deal or decision you ever made? Every time, every time you do a, a cartoon, it's a pretty bad uh, business decision. <laughs> Every, a lot of cartoons, I feel like the, the Simpsons happened and uh, they made huge money and, and the producers went never again. So they knock your money way down and, and you make, you make like a thousand dollars. Oh, I know I'm on, I'm on F is for family. Yeah. On Netflix. Yeah. And they even tried to bump my money up this year and they were like, no. <laughs> yeah. And then, and what are the, and what are the residuals on Netflix? There aren't any. None, none, none residuals. I get none. That's all got to change. Like we're now in that place where that, that fight's going to have to happen because now you've got these huge slates of big movies just going straight to HBO max. Yep. Yeah. I do, um, uh, Disney movies, voiceover for big Disney movies and they don't pay you a lot. Uh, on the front end, but it's always been like a, it's good for your career. And on the back end, you can get in residuals, but now that back end is gone. It's gone. All right. So you know what me and you need to do? We're today starting the voice over recording artist coalition, where we are going to make sure that you get at least $2,000 per <laughs> recording <laughs> session. But you know what? But here's the thing, Alan, and you probably dig this too, is the one thing I do dig about voiceover work, especially cartoons, is you get you might only get that thousand dollars, but you get brought in like three or four times per episode. Right. Because you got to do you do the initial recording, then you bring you back to match it up. And then they're like, oh, we forgot this. So it is kind of the gift that keeps on giving for like literally, you know, depending on the character size, a half an hour to an hour. Yes. And you get to wear your own clothes. There's no makeup involved. It's very simple. 
it is very easy work. I think that's why it's been allowed to happen that way. Because <laughs> she's going to go, well. I bet you've got a bad business deal you can't tell me because you're dealing with right now. Cute <laughs> <laughs> howling dog. That was like perfect timing. All right. The title song has such lasting appeal that both Don and Bruce Hornsby play it in their live sets. And even Bob Dylan performed it on his 2002 tour. So this is, that's a song that keeps on giving dude. Everybody gets an end of the innocence. It's like, you get to sing it and you get to sing it and you get to sing it. I wonder if anybody actually asks him or they just sing it. it that song is woven into the fabric of America. It is part of the flag, damn it. Anybody can sing. You don't even have to pay royalties on that thing. We all own it. Everybody everybody owns that song. It's White Christmas. It's like it's 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 public domain. Um all right, last one. In 1989, former Eagles guitarist Joe Walsh wanted to play their hit Desperado during his appearance on the Acoustic Songs and Stories show MTV Unplugged. Don sent a three-page fax denying that request. So MTV asked Don to join Joe for the episode, but Henley said he would only do his own episode, which he did the next year. So kind of a dick move by Don Henley. Um, But I get it, you know, for a guy that's working for the coalition, he wants to make sure he gets paid. Uh, But speaking of denial, and I know you've alluded to this before, but... Can you please tell us about your abbreviated stand-up career and what ended it? <laughs> um, a man named Ray ended it. I was doing stand-up at the Holiday Inn, at the bar and grill, sort of attached to the Holiday Inn in Jacksonville, Texas, East Texas, uh, where I was going to school. And I was doing 30-minute sets. That was that was what I was hired to do. I got fifty dollars though, fifty dollars to do thirty minute sets. Sounds right. And so I was had to ride a lot and ride a lot, ride a lot. And uh, so it was difficult. But I before the show, I was talking to this guy who was drunk named Ray. He introduced himself. He's Ray, and he was there with two women. And as I'm doing my show, he's sitting front and center, and I'm doing I'm doing it, and it's not going great anyway. But Ray's laughing. So I keep coming back and I'm like, Ray gets it. I'm like, oh, and I keep tagging Ray as I as I go. Well, Ray, being a Texan, doesn't like being, you know, singled out so much. And so he said, I think it was, fuck you, motherfucker. I and stood up and gave me two middle fingers and the, there was no stage. It was I was on the same. It was the dance floor of the bar club, whatever it was. And it so I'm on the same level as Ray and he's just in front of me with his double middle fingers up. Fuck you, motherfucker. I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And I'm 18. God, I must have been like 165 pounds. And I waiting for the bouncers in my mind that swoop in at this point and take away Ray. There's no bouncers. There's none of that. And then the great heckler muscle that kicks in that I don't have does not kick in. And I just said, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I was trying to, I was just being, I didn't mean anything about that. 
okay. And then he sat down and then I quickly finished my set. And, uh, as I was leaving, uh, he was staring me down. I had to pass by him with the equipment cause we had to bring in our own equipment. Anyway, um, cause I had a musical part of, I would sing a song at the end of, at the end of my set. And, uh, I swore I'd never do it again. And I never did. <laughs> I got into a group, into a improv, an improv troupe in Dallas. After I thought college. you were about to say, I got into group therapy after that. <laughs> <laughs> All the people there. affected by Ray. I encountered Ray <laughs> at a gas station. Uh, he double, double fingers, same thing, his, his MO. Just follows you around. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so I want to. I want to know something. So how long had you been doing it before you did your first half hour set? I did. I did it at the Taco Bueno Christmas party uh, uh, talent show and won $100 when I was 17, $100 and then coupons for like burritos. Nice. And then I took that material to the JC talent contest that they held at the college that I was going to in Jacksonville, Texas. And I won. And that's where the guy who ran the Holiday Inn Bar and Grill saw me and said, come do it. And I need you to do a 30-minute set and get two friends to do 30-minute sets. And I had a, a guy who was a teacher at the school, the, the worst acting teacher I ever had. Uh, he did it. And then he had somebody come in from Nacogdoches who was funnier than both of us. Uh, he did it. And so I guess I had done it three times. Oh my and then I had God. to expand it. I had to expand it to 30 minutes. And then the next time I did another 30 was my fourth time. And then the last time was my fifth time. And then I quit. And then you quit, dude, you had already gotten to a half hour. <laughs> Bro, you'd have hours. You would have, you'd have days worth of material if you would have kept writing that way. Yeah. I, I feel like it's something I, I it was, it was a, when I auditioned for Juilliard, uh, I said I, I made a deal with myself and with a buddy of mine that uh, if I don't get in, you need to fly to uh, New York and we'll do team comedy. We'll write comedy and we'll do team comedy because I love Jerry Lewis and uh, Dean Martin. And I thought we could do something. But if I started going to clubs, I'm sure it would have evolved into just doing stand-up because that team comedy thing wasn't going to work. Um, uh, unless you're the Sklar brothers. That's funny. <laughs> dude, they've been on the podcast. They've been on the podcast three times. I, dude, Randy and Jay, they're the best. The best. Um, yeah, dude, you saved yourself so much heartache. And like <laughs> Juilliard or trying to make it. And then also, I was making 50 bucks. Like, how, what a step down that would have been. Cause I don't think you make $50 doing stand up when you're first. Uh, no, out. actually, now for, for a half hour now, you make $100. Wow. Yeah, they haven't changed. Fifty dollars is the ten minute host now. So wow. So yeah, dude. It's it's you're doing pretty good, dude. You're I made I made the good money and then I got out. I made that sweet, sweet early that sweet, sweet. You got that taste for that for that fifty and then that hundred, and now you're making a thousand a read for your cartoonies. That's right. I've got a uh, was it Devil Devil May Care? I should promote Devil May Care. Going to be on Sci-Fi at midnight. Uh, I don't know if it'll be right after Resident Alien, but it'll. Yeah, t- 
Tell us about that because I want you to promote whatever you got. What do you got? I got a new show called Resident Alien. I'm the lead of it, which I haven't done that before. I usually I'm I'm in the you're in the mix. I'm in the support in the supporting role, and so I'm the alien. And I, he's an alien who came down to Earth, crash landed accidentally. He was here to kill everyone, I accidentally crash landed, and then uh, takes on the identity of a doctor he killed. And gets pulled into a, a small town uh, murder. The, the, and so he's there trying to play himself off, off as a human doctor. It's really funny. There's a lot of physical comedy. It's an hour, so it's a, a dramedy. Um, really great actors in it. I'm, I love how it turned out, and I think uh, people will like it. It's, it's really funny. Are, are you have me laughing just in the explanation. I've seen the ads for it, and I love that you're saying this is your first – uh, foray into being the lead because you know what's funny even though you were supporting and all the other stuff you stole almost every role you were in dude uh even from the first time i saw you which was the the sandra bullock movie uh 28 days you, you you're you're great dude you you deserve everything that's coming your way and that you've already gotten and this was such a treat man to be able to spend the last couple hours talking with you about don henley dude yeah uh and so I can't thank you enough, Alan. Thank, thank you, you very much for coming on, brother. Thank you. This has been a blast. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Alan Tudyk. Follow Alan on all social media at Alan Tudyk. And on January 27th, be sure to check out the premiere of Sci-Fi's new series, Resident Alien. It looks hilarious. I'm watching. You are too. Now, we just listened to Don Henley from 1989 for new music pick this week. We have Jeff Perlman with his song, Enough. And that's the song you're listening to in the background. Jeff is a guitarist from the Echo in the Canyon band and is featured on the soundtrack and in the documentary film Echo in the Canyon. He is also in the band Dead Rock West and is an active session and live guitarist in Los Angeles. If you want to hear more of his music, Go to our website, the500podcast.com. Listen to it on Spotify. And if you were in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com and put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, we're going deep into the 1985 compilation album, Indestructible Beat of Soweto. So y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album, Stay Fleecy, Doogle Doogle.
enough work, that's enough wine, and that's enough worry, it's all going to be fine, close your eyes and let your strings unwind, that's enough for one day, baby, time to ease your mind. Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like this. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.